This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Today I'm talking with the Reverend Dr. Dennis Johnson, Professor of Practical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. Dennis is author of Triumph of the Lamb, a must-read commentary on the Revelation. He's also author of The Message of Acts and the History of Redemption, editor of Heralds of the King, a collection of sermons in memory of Edmund Clowney, and he's author of the title we're discussing today, Him We Proclaim, Preaching Christ from All the Scriptures. And these titles, as always, are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Dennis, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you very much. There are a lot of books about preaching. I remember reading several of them when I was a seminary student, and maybe a few since. Why another book about preaching? Well, to answer that question, I need to give you a little bit of the background of how I came to write the book. Back when I first began to teach at Westminster Seminary, California, as a New Testament faculty member, I was asked by the then director of our Doctor of Ministry program, Dr. Jay Adams, to teach a course in the Doctor of Ministry program that would accompany Dr. Edmund Clowney's electives for the Doctor of Ministry students. He would come for a week and teach preaching Christ from the Old Testament, from the Pentateuch, from the wisdom literature, from the prophets. And Dr. Adams wanted me to come in in the afternoon after pastors had heard Dr. Clowney open up the scriptures and point them to Christ and show really the understructure, the substructure of the biblical hermeneutic to help them to understand that Dr. Clowney was really showing them things that were really there in the scriptures embedded by the Spirit of God to point forward to Christ, especially in the Old Testament. One of the things that I have experienced in the past listening to Ed Clowney preach is the sensation that we're going along, and then suddenly at the end of the sermon, it would take a surprising twist. And it was a, a wonderful and delightful twist, and everything would come together. And I often thought to myself, how did he do that? And so you're giving lectures to ministers to explain how did that work so that it wasn't really what it sometimes might have seemed— pulling rabbits out of hats, or making arbitrary connections, but he was really doing something else. And the reason I bring up Ed again, because I'm looking at the book here, and it says, In Memory of Edmund Prosper Clowney. So this is very much a Clowney-influenced book. What does it mean to preach Christ from all of Scripture, but to do so in a way that isn't artificial and isn't making connections between passages arbitrarily? I think it involves, among other things, really seeing the deep unity of Scripture in the theme of covenant, that the Bible as a whole is a book about the covenant. It's a book about the Lord and his human servant. It's a book about a disruption of the covenant in Adam's violation of the covenant of works and God's, of course, eternal plan to remedy that through a covenant of grace in which the Father and the Son and the Spirit bring rescue. And the Son becomes incarnate to fulfill not only the Lord's promises in the covenant, but also the servant's obligations in the covenant, and to endure the curse that we deserve as covenant breakers 
So he is really, truly the one and only mediator between God and man, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. And it's really tracing that through, that covenant structure, respecting the fact that God is working it out over many centuries of the era of promise, leading to the time of fulfillment in Christ, and asking how each text, each event in Israel's history, each institution, each officer, shadows and foreshadows the reality that would come in the Messiah, in Christ. You mentioned the importance of covenant as a way of unifying Scripture and giving a certain coherence to Christian preaching. Recently, I heard a well-known, well-respected evangelical theologian talk about covenant theology as if it were a wholly arbitrary construct invented and then imposed on the Scripture as a way of explaining things. Perhaps the listener is sitting there thinking, well, I know there's talk about covenant in the Old Testament, but there's not much talk about covenant in the New Testament. Maybe these guys are just making stuff up, and they're just as bad as everyone else who is making up structures and imposing them on the Scriptures. When I make the case that covenant is really the whole substructure of the Bible, it's about God's relationship to his people in covenant, one thing I try to do is to point people to look at their own physical Bibles and to look at the page before Genesis 1-1 and the page before Matthew 1-1. And my hunch is that unless there's some intervening article there, they're going to find on that page before Genesis 1-1 two words, Old Testament, and before Matthew, New Testament. And then we talk a little bit about where those words came from, that the word testament actually came into English through Jerome's decision to translate the Greek word, which typically means covenant, but could mean last will and testament. Jerome chose that testamentum, and uh, we followed his lead. But in the instinct that we have to call these two sections of the Bible, old and new, and then really to relate covenant terminology, we're simply reflecting the way God has revealed his structure of redemptive history from the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, and then, of course, the full elaboration of that promise in the epistle to the Hebrews, especially, talking about Jesus as the mediator of the new and better covenant. And, of course, the inspired author of Hebrews is really building on the point that Jesus makes at that crucial point in his ministry as he's about to go to the cross and institutes the Lord's Supper as the sign and seal of the new covenant that would be inaugurated through his sacrificial death. So those are at least a couple of very obvious things that can show us that the Church has always seen the structure of the Bible and the structure of redemptive history as covenantal, leading from old to new. One of the questions that has sometimes been raised about the business of preaching Christ, because you, your uh, title is Him we proclaim. And the hymn, of course, refers to Christ. One of the questions that has been raised is something like this. Okay, theoretically, I would like to preach Christ, but when I get into the pulpit or when I'm writing a sermon during the week, I'm conscious of, you know, Mrs. X has this issue, and Mr. Y has that issue, and then, of course, you know, in my state, uh, they just did this, and there's this social issue, and this crisis, and all of these things sort of impinge on the writing of the sermon so that if these things weren't going on, well, 
maybe I would feel freer to preach the kinds of sermons you want me to preach, Johnson, but in the light of these really pressing issues, I think I need to really face those issues directly, and then maybe by and by we'll get to preaching Christ the way that you think he ought to be preached in this book. My answer would be, if Mrs. X's issue and Mr. Y's issue, and even society's issues, are issues of faithfulness and unfaithfulness to God, they're issues of sin and the need for redemption, then by all means, I need to address those issues from the standpoint of how God's Word addresses them. But I can't address them in any other way other than showing that our response to temptation, our response to our sin, our response to being sinned against from others, always has to flow from amazement at the grace of God in Christ. If I simply give coaching on dealing with issues that don't point people to Christ and how he has kept all the commands for me, and how now by his Spirit he is enabling me, I'm still weak, I still fail and fall, but he's enabling me to live in union with him by the work of the Spirit. If I don't point them to Christ, then I'm going to be maybe leading them to a kind of a superficial optimism that they can deal with this problem through their own resources, or leading them to despair. But really, the gospel is the thing that's got to drive our response to the challenges of life. It doesn't mean we ignore those challenges. It doesn't mean that we simply pretend that people don't live in particular families and in the world in which they live. But we help them to address those things out of the overflow of gratitude that comes from knowing what Christ has done for us and what he is now doing in us by the work of the Spirit. Doesn't the question also assume something that may not necessarily be true, and that is that preaching Christ is sort of a second blessing that we can get to, and it would be good, but it's not essential. In other words, as Bob Godfrey has quoted many times to us, if we don't build orphanages, somebody will. If we don't build hospitals, somebody will. If we don't come up with a solution to a social problem, somebody will. But if we don't preach the law and the gospel and administer the sacraments and discipline, nobody else is going to do that. I agree. I guess the question is, how do we convince pastors that as unlikely as it seems, as counterintuitive as it is, that preaching Christ is really the most powerful way, although maybe not the most obvious way, of addressing the issues that they want to address? Well, I think you can only do that by showing them Scripture, showing them the way Paul summarizes his own preaching as simply preaching Christ. Him we proclaim comes from Colossians 1.28. I've shamelessly plagiarized the Apostle Paul there. And Paul often describes his preaching as preaching Christ, preaching him crucified. So that was his priority. I think that's one thing we need to show pastors. I think we also need to show them what Jesus showed the disciples after his resurrection, as we have it recorded in Luke 24, that really he showed that the Old Testament scriptures, the scriptures given to Israel, were all about himself. But I think the other thing that really addresses the pastor's sense that I need to preach something that will change people, that will enable people to respond to the challenges of their lives, including if they have resources and opportunity 
to enable orphans to be cared for or whatever. What they need to see is what Paul says, and that is that any message other than Christ and his grace lacks the power to change our hearts, to reorient our values, to sustain our motivation. Paul says the law was powerless through the flesh. Paul says if there had been a law given that could make alive, then righteousness would be through the law. But if we only tell people their duty, then we're pointing them in a direction that has no power to enable them to do their duty. Only Jesus and deepening faith in Christ can be and really is the Spirit's instrument to cause us to grow so that we can sustain our discipleship and our obedience in these other areas. It's interesting that Jesus was also faced with the challenge and even, some might say, the temptation of addressing a whole host of problems directly, but he didn't. He instead persisted in what many regarded as a misguided mission to the cross. That's true. He did deal with, of course, the physical needs of many. He healed as signs of his messianic authority. As signs. As signs pointing to the messianic authority, but also as signs pointing forward to the fact that God would, in the end, bring total physical healing to those who belong to him through the resurrection in the new heavens and the new earth. But at the same time, when people begged Jesus to stay in an area because there were presumably more sick people to be healed, he very deliberately told his disciples, no, we need to move on because I must herald the good news of the kingdom in other places. We're talking to Dennis Johnson, author of Him We Proclaim, Preaching Christ from All the Scriptures. I'm Scott Clark. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Okay, Dennis, much of your book is taken up in making a case for this Christ-centered apostolic preaching. And you begin with the Apostle Paul. How did Paul preach Christ? In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, Jay Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. We have samples of Paul's preaching preserved for us by Luke, the inspired historian in the book of Acts. And typically, Paul preached Christ in one of a couple of ways. If he was in a context in which he anticipated that people would acknowledge the authority of Israel's ancient scriptures, God's word given to them called the Old Testament, then he would very directly take them to Old Testament prophecies. Think of Acts 13, for example, when he's in Antioch of Pisidia, and he takes them to the prophecies that announce the coming of the Messiah from the line of David, and he will show them the necessity of Christ's suffering, the Messiah's suffering, and of his resurrection, and then show that Jesus is the fulfillment of that, and call them to repentance and faith. When he's in a pagan context, such as at Lystra or in Athens, He doesn't begin with the Old Testament scriptures. He typically begins with the revelation that had confronted the pagans, namely what we call general revelation in creation. 
but he always leads them to the point of seeing that we stand now, as he would say, at a new moment in the Creator's dealing with his human creatures, in that now God has sent his Son, God has designated, as he says to the Athenian philosophers, his Son as the great judge at the last day, and begins to turn the conversation directly to the person of Christ. So we see that in Paul's evangelistic preaching in the book of Acts. I believe that Paul's epistles also reflect his preaching and more in-house his preaching to congregations. And we typically see him, by and large, in the structure of his epistles, laying a foundation of the gospel, what God has done in Christ in the opening section of most epistles, and then in the conclusion, really pulling out from that indicative, that announcement of good news, what God has done in Christ in reconciliation, in redemption, he will then draw out the implications for us. Ephesians is a good example, half and half, basically, in the way we've divided the chapters much after Paul's time, but chapters 1 through 3, all about God's gospel, bringing peace, bringing unity in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6, now walk worthily of this gospel. And that means Paul unpacks that. He doesn't ignore the issues of how a husband is to treat his wife because it's to reflect Christ's love for the church. He doesn't ignore the the way in which a slave is to perform work to his master and the master treat his slave. But in all of these, he is rooting and grounding his application in the announcement of what God has done in Christ. In your book, you discuss challenges— to apostolic preaching. And I can imagine the listener and perhaps a reader thinking to himself, well, he was Paul. He's an apostle. He did all sorts of things that I can't do because I'm just an ordinary fellow. How do you address that? And particularly, does this fellow Gerhardus Voss give us any avenues that would encourage the minister who's thinking along those lines? In answer to the first part of your question, I think I would say Paul is, and the other apostles as well, they are unique in that they are speaking and writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So what conclusion should I draw from that? My humble objector is basically saying, I can't do what Paul does because I'm not inspired. I would turn it around and say, if Paul is inspired— and he's showing me by his example how to read the Old Testament scriptures, then really I should be watching very carefully how he does that so that I can apply his hermeneutic to the text that he has not commented on rather than at that moment when I come to one of those texts where we don't have an apostolic commentary, I adopt some other Hermeneutic. Fill in with somebody else's model. Exactly. Rather than the Apostle Paul's. And why is somebody else's model superior to that used by Jesus or that used by Peter, which you can see in First and Second Peter? And in Peter's preaching in the book of Acts as well. Exactly. We have snapshots at least, at least a synopsis of those sermons. Quickly, and I know this is putting you on the spot, how does Voss help us, or does he? Well, Voss does help us a great deal because of his sensitivity to both the diversity and the unity of Scripture in the unfolding of redemptive history. He pays careful attention to the fact that revelation in the era of Moses 
or in the era of the prophets, was not as overt and clear and explicit as the revelation that we can now read and have access to through the inspired writings of the New Testament. So he says, respect that distance. Respect the fact that not everything that we can see in an Old Testament text, because the apostles have pointed the way for us, necessarily would have been completely understandable to the people who lived in that time and place. Peter, after all, says in First Peter that the prophets through whom the Spirit of Christ was announcing the sufferings and the glories to follow of Christ, did not fully understand. They were searching to find out what the Spirit was saying through them. So Voss emphasizes that diversity. Respect it. Don't try to read all of the detail that we know in the New Testament back into the Old as though they could have grasped fully what it was about. There is a progressive nature to Revelation. At the same time, what Voss does, and especially in contrast to those in the 19th century in the critical school who were arguing for what they called biblical theology, was that Voss emphasized that this diversity is not just a function of the Bible's humanity, but it's built into Scripture by the divine author of Scripture. So unlike others in the 19th century, the critics who were saying, well, we can't expect that there's a consistency of Moses and Paul, or even Paul and James in the New Testament, Voss would say, no, if we understand them deeply, we will see development, we will see progressive clarification, but we will also see consistency as God, the divine author, has ordained this way to tie his clarity in revelation to the progressive movements of his acts of redemption. I think maybe that's, in my mind, one of the most important things that Voss says, that as God works out his plan of redemption, along with that, he's working out the clarity of his revelation to the fulfillment in Christ. So you cannot have homiletics without hermeneutics. You have to be able to interpret a particular passage in the light of the whole and relate those two. And so before you get into the pulpit, you have to first get into the Word and understand how it all hangs together. And yet, hermeneutics is not the end of homiletics. You've got to do both. Understand the whole story of Scripture and then the particular passage in the light of that, and then take that into the pulpit. How then does the other author that you focus on in this book, the writer to the Hebrews, help us make that bridge between hermeneutics and homiletics? What we call the epistle to the Hebrews, I am more and more persuaded we should really call the sermon to the Hebrews. He describes his book as a word of exhortation at the end, and we know from extra-biblical literature, but also from the way that very phrase is used in Acts 13, that that was used among the Greek-speaking Jewish communities in the dispersion to describe an exposition and application of Scripture, because Paul and Barnabas are invited to give a word of exhortation in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. What the author to the Hebrews does so beautifully is that he interprets various Old Testament themes and texts as fulfilled in Christ, and then really immediately goes on to show the implications for us 
It's not an abstract essay. Look at how everything connects to Jesus. Its argument is always, this is how God graciously dealt with Israel in the Old Covenant. He has done so much more for you now. Therefore, how much more ought you to respond with persevering faith? Ought you to respond by encouraging one another so that no one falls short of the grace of God? Hebrews is interesting because unlike a Pauline epistle, instead of front-loading the indicatives and then back-loading the imperatives, Hebrews embeds the imperatives, the implications, applications, at each point in the sermon. Jesus is better than the angels, chapters 1 and 2, and at the beginning of chapter 2 then, if it was important to listen to the law given through angels, how much more should we listen to the word of salvation spoken through the Son, and so on through the book? I don't know how much you deal with this in the book, I don't recall, but it's interesting, First and Second Peter, he often puts the imperative first, and then the indicative. How can you help the pastor think about relating imperatives and indicatives and the various ways that they appear in Scripture? We've mentioned Paul's way of doing it, Hebrew's way of doing it, and now let's take, for example, Peter's, if my summary is accurate. Well, I think the main thing we learn from that is that since we do have at least three canonical New Testament models for relating indicative and imperative in the structure of a sermon— we should probably conclude that there's no one right indispensable way that means that the others are to be condemned forever. The pastor has to think seriously about, among other things, his congregation and where they are in terms of their foundation in understanding the gospel. I think the point is that the two can be related in terms of what comes first and what comes next in a variety of ways. As long as we don't leave indicatives sort of hanging in an abstract, intellectual, oh, that was interesting kind of way, but we show that God's announcement of Christ is driving us toward our response, our covenantal response, first in trust, trusting in Jesus for what he's done for us in his obedience and his sacrifice, and then in a trust that actually lives out faith. So we need to do that. Uh, We don't want to leave indicatives hanging without showing how we are to respond to those indicatives. At the same time, as we've already talked about, if we only talk about imperatives without talking about the foundation in Christ and the good news of what he's done, then again, we leave people powerless, either proud and complacent or desperate. That's a challenge, because if you're going to preach, for example, through Ephesians, as I mentioned, there are a number of places in chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul's application section, where he briefly but very clearly exposes again the gospel foundation of the instructions that he's giving. Pastors need to remember to bring that out when they preach so that the folks who were not present since we pray and hope that there will be growing churches with a lot of folks who were not there when he preached through Ephesians 1 through 3, were not there to hear the gospel exposition in its fullness in those early chapters, will hear the gospel as it's the foundation of the instructions to speak the truth in love and so on. And by the same token, as he's preaching through those first three chapters, 
He can't just leave that as a long series that deals only with intellectual matters, but he needs to be driving the congregation ahead to see how that's going to impact their lives, as Paul will show it to the Ephesians in chapters 4 through 6. A sermon, then, is neither just a Bible study with some interesting facts to think about, nor is it merely good advice for 10 steps to have a happy life. It's a proclamation of a message with implications for faith and life. And one of the things that you did in this volume is that you included an appendix from text to sermon, a step-by-step guide to biblical interpretation in sermon preparation. That's Appendix A, and then you have Appendix B, sample sermons. Now, that's a little bit unusual in a book about preaching. As soon as I saw it, I thought, that's so obvious. They should all have that. How can you write a book about preaching if you don't really spell out how this works, and and then if you don't illustrate how it's done? Well, it reflects the fact that this book came out of my teaching in the classroom, trying to prepare students, both as a New Testament professor, and then when I switched focus and began to focus on what we call practical theology and preaching, I realized that if I made the case well to our students, and they went out convinced that they need to preach Christ from every scripture and show how his accomplishment works out in their lives, in our response, I better do more than simply say, you need to do this. I better show them how. So that particular step-by-step guide I used in the years that I taught New Testament, but developed further in 97 when I switched over into focusing on practical theology, especially to think about the end. And as you see in one of the footnotes, I acknowledge some sources that I benefited from, from Palmer Robertson and, uh, and Vern Poitras, who had done earlier things. But then in my experience, I felt like I needed to say more about moving from that spade work interpretation to the how do I structure the sermon? Uh, how do I anticipate where my congregation is going to misunderstand or not be persuaded? How do I bring that through to them? And so this didn't just take place in the classroom. This also took place in the pulpit. The sermon, the sample sermon that you include here, was preached in a congregation. So it comes out of your preaching as well in pulpits uh, in front, not just of seminary students. One of the criticisms I've heard about the collection of chapel addresses by Voss, Grace, and Glory, which is wonderful and everyone should read it, one of the criticisms is that, well, yeah, you can preach that way to a chapel at Princeton Seminary in the early part of the 20th century, but you can't do that now. But here you've got a sermon preached in front of an ordinary American a Presbyterian congregation where you did preach Christ from Scripture, and you didn't do it artificially. Uh, look at this clever connection that no one would ever think to imagine, but you did it by allowing the message of Christ and about Christ to arise from, organically, from the text of Scripture itself. You actually have a section in this book dealing with that. These were real sermons, yes, preached both to the congregation of which I'm an associate pastor, but also Hebrews 13 sermon actually was preached to several different congregations because I was invited to preach to them soon after their pastors had been called elsewhere, and it has to do with that text at the end that talk about the consistency of the fact that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, even though human leaders come and go. That's the text at the end of Hebrews. And it just seemed so 
apt, so relevant to the needs of those congregations at that particular moment, and to point them to Christ, who is their good shepherd, who will always care for them, even as he uses different pastors in different times to nurture their faith. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.